You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. This morning we're going to continue uh, in Genesis. We're going to be in 44, uh, 1 through 17. It's on page 26 in the Bibles that are in the chair back. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, feel free to take that one as a gift. We want everyone to have the Word of God. Uh, let's begin. Genesis 44, 1 through 17. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. We also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And as the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out that the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your Father. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning that we can celebrate uh, a baptism. Praise your name uh, through music. And Lord, be with Jeremy as he brings a message. And as we study the word and listen to it, open our hearts and help us to apply it to our lives to be changed and anew and be more like you. Till we meet you again, Lord. In your name. Thank you, Jerry. So there's this organization that does a survey every couple years. R.C. Sproul founded it called Ligonier Ministries. And they ask random adults to fill out the survey, and they ask Christians to fill out the survey. So random adults, Christians, whenever they do one of these surveys, pastors like me get the results, and then we think, 
for real? They ask a bunch of people who don't pretend to be Christian, and then they ask a bunch of people who are Christian, and the results are not that different. Come on, man. Then I think, not Mill Creek. If they would give you that survey, you'd crush it. Because the preaching here is so on point, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Seeing as I'm so competitive, I decided to give you the test this morning instead of the sermon. And no pressure, but you need to beat the national averages or else. Just kidding. No, but I do want to start the sermon by asking one question from that survey. Don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to say anything. I'm just curious if you would, in your mind, take a one-question test this morning. Here's the question I want you to answer. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Think about your answer for a sec. Turns out, you go and ask regular people who don't pretend to be Christian, 70% will agree with that statement. Yeah, everyone's born innocent. 10% will say, I don't know. 20% will say, disagree, meaning 20% who disagree, who call that statement false, are right. It's the doctrine of original sin. When a person is born, are they born a sinner? You're the Chiefs game later today. The survey holds, 70% of fans are going to go, nah, but there's 20% who get it right. So that's just regular people. You go to people who call themselves Christians, get this, 65% agree with that statement too. Just a couple percent say, I don't know, and then a little over 30%. Get it right. So at the Chiefs game, 70% get it wrong. If the survey is true for Mill Creek, 65% of us get it wrong. Come on, man. All that work. So like Mill Creekers. I mean, if you're a guest here, I'm going to give you a pass. But if you're like a Mill Creeker, like you've heard us say from the front that you are a sinner by nature and choice. It's that nature part. Somebody just nod their head a little bit to me. Just made me feel a little better. Thank you. Thank you. My brother was in here last, last time, and he was nodding real big for me. He said, okay, at least he got it. Here's why, here's why this is important. It turns out the doctrine of original sin is not very popular, at least in our culture. And, and, and if 65% of us get this wrong in this room, chances are it's not popular here. Like, I don't know anybody that... that shows up with a mug that has Ephesians 2-3 printed on it. We are born children of wrath. I don't know anybody who gets that thing tattooed. Hey, check it out. We are children of wrath. Ooh. 
I don't know anybody who's like made their life, life verse, Psalm 14:3, all are corrupt, none does good, not even one. Anybody get married and pick that for their like, we're going to read that at the wedding. <laughs> Romans 3.23 is a huge piece of humble pie. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't know anybody who thinks to themselves, man, that doctrine feels beautiful to me. I mean, if you're here and you're like, actually, I love that one. Okay, but I don't know many people who love it. And, and the reason that that question piqued my interest and the reason it matters today is here's, here's the way it plays in my brain. If you're here and you don't actually understand original sin, you don't think you have a debt against God, well, then if there's somebody who wants to pay the debt for you, it doesn't matter because you didn't think you had a debt. Or... There's some who actually do get the doctrine right, but if you don't care that you have a debt against God, then it doesn't matter if somebody wants to pay your debt. It, it'd be like this. If this afternoon we decided to open up this building and, and invite anybody around to bring us either a credit card debt, a student loan debt, or your mortgage debt. You pick which one you want, just get in line, and the church is going to write a check for whatever the balance is. So just anybody can come, tell your friends and neighbors, we're going to come pay the debt. There's a bunch of you who go, we're, we're skipping life group, babe. We're going to go to that debt reduction party they're having here, and, and which one's the most? <laughs> but if you're here and you don't have a credit card debt, and you don't have student loan debt, and you don't have house debt, well, you don't care, because you don't need it. You're not showing up. I think that's some of the ways we think about the debt of original sin. Either we deny it's true, we deny that we have a debt, or we don't really care, because maybe we don't think we need anything paid for. But for those with significant debt, that sort of an offer would be unbelievable. And this morning in our text, we've got to do business with guilt. And the reason we've got to do business with guilt, the reason we've got to talk about original sin is because that's where our text goes. And in case you didn't know, the way we preach at Mill Creek is, whatever the big idea of the text is, that's the big idea of the sermon. And so today we're talking guilt. We're talking substitution. And this morning, we're in Genesis 44. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Genesis 44 so you can track along? The sermon has two big ideas before we're done, I'll talk about application, but two big ideas I want to show you from the text. If you're taking notes, would you write down the first one? We're all guilty. We're all guilty. None of us are innocent in the eyes of God, but don't take my word for it. Let me show you from the text. I'm going to draw this from verses 1 to 16. With, with Genesis 44 opened, look at verse one where we find this steward of Joseph's house obeying the command to not only put food in the grain sacks of the brothers, but return money, and finally, put a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. Would you say silver cup? One, two, three. Silver cup turns out to be real important in this story. And this sounds very random till we remember kind of where we're at in the Joseph narrative. 
if you're new with us this week, you, you need to know that Joseph in Genesis 37 was sold into slavery because his brothers were so jealous of him. Joseph was a favored son of his dad. His brothers hated it. They sold him into slavery. He headed off to Egypt. He was in Potiphar's house. Eventually, he was put into jail before he was actually made number two in all of Egypt. He's super powerful, and he helps Egypt get through this seven years of abundance followed by all of this worldwide famine. And so we're two years into the famine, and the famine's all over, and you have people not only in Egypt, but across the lands coming to Egypt because they hear they have food. And it's only a matter of time before Joseph's brothers show up. And they do. They showed up a couple chapters ago. They need food, 42. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph. And so Joseph puts them through a couple tests. Test one in 42, he says, you guys go home and bring Benjamin back with you. But I'm going to keep one of the brothers. I'm going to put him in jail. And this was the ingenious test for Joseph. Will the brothers ignore the one in Egypt, or will they come back for him? For, of course, Joseph was a brother who was ignored in Egypt. The brothers passed that test because they come back with Benjamin. So then he puts them through a second test. This is Genesis 43. Pastor Dave preached it last week. The second test is he's going to put all the boys in a room, and they're going to eat, and he lines them up. Oldest to youngest, which is fascinating to the boys because there's 11 of them and they're going, man, how does this guy know who's oldest and youngest? They can't figure it out. They can't crack the code. The youngest, Benjamin, here's the test. He gets five times the portion. So they're having ribeye. Benji gets five ribeyes. The culture would have said that the eldest gets the extra, but Benjamin gets the extra. And here's the test. Would the other 10 be jealous of the favored son at the table. Because that's what happened back in his day. He was favored. He didn't do it, but he was favored, and they hated him for it. Would they pull the same stunt with Benjamin? The end of the chapter, they passed that test as well. They're all hanging out. There's not a bunch of favoritism. Brings us then to test number three in our text. They've all got their grain. Simeon has been released from jail. They're all getting ready to head home. When Joseph, verse 4, sends his right-hand man after the brothers, and he says, search their stuff. Verse 6, the steward obeys, catches up to them, says, you guys stole the special silver cup. Say silver cup. The fellas naturally defend their innocence. They make a bold statement in verse 9. Look at verse 9. If you find that cup in our bags, we'll all be your slaves. Verse 10, though, the steward, no, 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 no. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. You can feel the anticipation building from verse 11 to 12 as they open up the sack. Sack number one, no cup. Sack number two, no cup. And they keep going down the order of the brothers until the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack, verse 12. Now, we already saw the steward say, y'all don't have to be slaves. 
Y'all don't have to be servants. Only the one who has the silver cup. Look at the response. Verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. How heart-wrenching that must have been. They're thinking they're in the clear. They're out of the mess. We're going home. We've got Simeon out of jail. We've got Benjamin. We've got food. We're going to make it. Only to have to turn around and face that scary Egyptian leader again. But here's the brilliance. The boys loading their donkeys and returning to the city means they've passed test number three. For, for they could have kept their money and kept their grain and said, Look, Benjamin, I'm real, real sorry for you. And it's a real, real bummer you got that silver cup, but you got the silver cup. So, I mean, you wouldn't want us to go down to Egypt again with you. So, have a good life, my man. <laughs> but they don't do that. Oh, that's what they did with Joseph. But they don't do that with Benjamin. They all tear their clothes, which is interesting because when Joseph came up and was, they told their dad, Joseph is dead, the brothers didn't tear their clothes when they found out that he was dead. Jacob did. Only dad tore his clothes at the end of Genesis 37. Reuben had done that a little bit earlier, but the rest of the brothers weren't tearing their clothes. But look in the text. When they find out Benjamin's got to go, look at their response. They don't cut bait and run. They tear their clothes. It's grief. Verse 14, Judah leads his brothers into Joseph's house. They fall on their face. They beg for mercy. Verse 15, Joseph says, you took my special silver cup, and by it I can practice magical divination, so you better start speaking the truth. That's like the modern equivalent of like truth serum. Joseph saying, I'm going to know what you did and didn't do, so you might as well just fess up. By the way, divination in the, later on in the Old Testament is strictly forbidden, and my sense is Joseph doesn't really do that. He's just putting up a situation so the boys know we might as well be honest because somehow he knows what we're doing. Judah, verse 16. By the way, realize Judah's not the eldest. He's not number two or number three. He's fourth oldest. So, so Judah has no business speaking on behalf of everybody, but he shows up and he speaks. Verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. Now, now pause for a minute, church, because notice what he's admitting in verse 16. This, this is so important. In verse 16, Judah's saying, you, you caught us, we're guilty. But didn't we already know from verses 1 and 2, they didn't do it? So is Judah lying? Because they didn't put the money back in their sacks. They didn't take the silver cup. I mean, if you ask Benjamin, he said, did you take the silver cup? I didn't take the silver cup. Silver cup's in your bag. I didn't take the silver cup. So why in verse 16 is Judah saying, we're guilty? That'd be a lie. Here's the answer and what all the commentators agree with. Judah's quote in verse 16 is not saying, we took the money and we took the silver cup. Because we already know they didn't. Rather, Judah, as the leader and spokesperson of all the brothers, is acknowledging 
that since they showed up in Egypt, God has been putting them through all of these situations for testing because the brothers are guilty of selling Joseph into slavery back in 37. What Judah is doing is not parsing out, yeah, we're totally guilty of the, of the money and the silver cup. What Judah's saying is, God knows we are guilty of a sin, and we're going to confess. It'd be like him saying, the Lord knows that we deserve punishment for what we did a long time ago, and so you're right, we're guilty. Judah's acknowledging in front of Joseph that God has caught them for that awful hidden sin. And that brings us to the end of our first section here, showing us a powerful example that we can follow when it comes to our sin. The example we can follow is to confess, but here's the problem. 65% of us, if we're like the survey results, even of Christians, 65% of us don't think we're guilty. And one of the ways that you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm not guilty, the boys aren't guilty, is because you want to go back and try to say, man, Judah doesn't have to confess to anything because they didn't do it. But if you're particularly defensive of the boy's innocence in Genesis 44, you're missing the point of verse 16, and you're missing the greater story context where the boys were guilty of selling Joseph into slavery. And if you're defensive of the guys here, my guess is you may be defensive of your own life. You want to defend your innocence. But Scripture teaches, friend, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. None of us are born innocent. Romans 3.23 is true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are guilty, sinners by nature and choice. Meaning, yes, because we come from the bloodline of Adam, the very first person to ever live, Adam and Eve, we are their offspring on the family tree. We are sinners because we are related to him. And we are sinners by choice. Hearing Judah admit the guilt of the brothers must have been encouraging for Joseph to hear. But here then is the final test of his brothers. It gets us to the second point. A substitute is needed. Verses 17 to the end, 34. And this is so beautiful. Look, look with me. Verse 17. Joseph replies to Judah's confession. All y'all don't have to pay the price for, for the sin of stealing my cup. Only Benjamin. Here again, Judah and the brothers are free to cut bait and go home. How would they respond? Are they going to save themselves by sacrificing Benjamin? Judah again walks up, talks to Joseph. Verse 18, Mr. Powerful Egyptian Lord, may I please say a few things before you kill us? And then verse 19 to 29 Judah walks through the entire story and says, look, Mr. Powerful Lord, this is what happened. The first time we came here, you grilled us with all these questions. Do you have another brother? What about your dad? And we didn't know what you were doing, but you found out our dad's alive, so is our little brother. And you said, do not come back unless you bring him. 
And then you kept one of us in jail. And so we went back home and we told our dad, dad, one of us was left in jail. That's where Simeon is. But now we got to go back and we got to take Benjamin. But Mr. Powerful Egyptian Lord, you got to know something. You got to know something. My dad's favorite kid is Benjamin. That's why he didn't come down with us on the first time. He was so afraid he'd die. And now you're sitting here saying, as you've seen him, you're saying you're going to keep him. Judah's trying to make a case with this powerful Egyptian lord. And I think Joseph would have especially leaned into verse 27. Would you look at verse 27? I think, I think Joseph would especially leaned in when Judah said that his dad had a wife who bore him two sons. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. That's a quote from Jacob that Judah's using. Now, why is that so fascinating for our purposes? Well, J Jacob's talking like he only has one wife. But how many wives does Jacob have? Two. He has two wives. So why is he only talking about the one wife? You know, that my wife... Well, here's the answer. Why, Joseph peak up, peak? Why, why, why would Joseph perk up here? It's because, it's because in Jacob's family, functionally, it was as if he only had one wife. If you don't know the story, Jacob had a favorite wife. Her name was Rachel. She had two kids, Joseph, who's now in this position, and Benjamin. And if you were born of Leah, the other wife, you were a nobody, now, I don't know what your family of origin is like, but I want you to imagine that in your home, for reasons outside of your control, what it would feel like if another sibling of yours was favored and loved and always made much of, even though they didn't do anything. And what it would be like for you if your dad always picked them over you. That'd be painful. You can begin to perhaps be more sensitive to why these brothers hated him so much. But here, in verse 27, Judah doesn't even know who he's talking to, and he just acknowledges the facts. What would have been deeply painful, the, the wounds that this would have undoubtedly created, Judah just says, look, my dad is who my dad is. It's like he only had one wife, and Benjamin's the son of the favored wife. So Benjamin's his favorite because his mom was my dad's favorite. See, Judah, out of love for his dad, is willing to stand in front of this terrifyingly powerful man and communicate a deep truth of the reality of his situation. My dad can't lose that guy. My dad could lose me. And those are the facts. And then, and then look what he says in verse 30. This is, this is the most powerful part of our Text, this may be the most powerful part of all of Genesis. Look at verse 30. Follow along with me. Judah says, now, now therefore, as soon as I come to my dad and, and Benjamin is not with us, then as my dad's life is bound up in Benjamin's life, as soon as my dad sees that Benjamin is not with us, he will die. And, and my brothers and I will bring down the gray hairs of my dad with sorrow to Sheol. For, for I, Judah, became a pledge of safety for Benjamin to my dad, saying, Dad, if I don't bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame before you all my life. 
Now, therefore, please, Mr. Powerful Egyptian Lord, please let me stay instead of Benjamin as a servant to you and let Benjamin go back with my brothers. For how can I go back to my dad if Benjamin's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What I want you to see is Despite all the pain that it must have been for Judah to not be a favored son and not to have a favored wife and to be a nobody in his dad's family, Judah, out of love for his dad, is willing to be a substitute for guilty Benjamin. And don't forget, church, how far Judah has come. Back in Genesis 37, it's Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah's the one who does that. In Genesis 38, Judah's the one who almost has his daughter-in-law killed because she's pregnant when they find out, actually, you're the one who did that. Oh, yeah. It's that Judah. And now, in front of this most powerful Pharaoh's number two, he's willing to be a substitute. Bringing us to the end of our second point. What Judah would have readily admitted is, in this situation, a substitute is needed. What an incredible chapter. These are incredible confessions. The brothers have passed the last test. Uh, thanks, Pastor, for Genesis 44. Thanks for talking us through it. But what does this have to do with Jesus, and what does this have to do with me? Okay, like, how does this all connect? Well, we have to go back to where we began with original sin, if we're going to make sense of how this text points us to Jesus and what we should do with it today. See, for anyone who's unwilling to admit that they are a sinner by nature, for anybody who rejects the doctrine of original sin... This chapter means very little. My guess it probably means nothing because who cares that there's somebody's guilty and they need a substitute because that's not your problem. You don't appreciate the beauty of a substitute if you don't think you need one. But if you would grant the doctrine of original sin, if you would grant you really are guilty, you have this incredible debt against God if you grant that you are born a child of wrath and you've sinned against a holy God, this chapter prefigures nothing short of the gospel itself, the picture of Christ's death for our sin. That's what we see. Judah then is an arrow that points for in our Bible, Judah is the first human to voluntarily substitute himself for another. He points us to the perfect substitute. Here's the connection. Jesus, like Judah, is willing to sacrifice himself for the good of his brothers. And sisters, Jesus came and willingly took the place of all who would look to him as a substitute. For here's the truth, we're all guilty and we need a substitute. And that's a sermon in a sentence. We're all guilty. We all need a substitute. That's our text. 
Those are the first two big ideas. Let's now move to application. If you're taking notes, would you write this first application down? Believe. We're guilty. I need a substitute. Here's where I want to try to drill this practically into our lives. We need to believe we're guilty and need a substitute. Now, I, I, look, your sins are very likely different than the sins in the text. The sins I'm struggling with are not identical to the brothers. At least last I checked, none of you have made an appointment with a, one of our biblical counselors or Pastor Marty and said, 22 years ago, we sold one of our brothers into slavery in the Middle East, and we're not really sure where he's at right now, and I'm feeling really guilty. Can you help me with the Bible a little bit? Man, if some of you are actually struggling with that right now, I just made a lot of fun of you. I hope you come back. <laughs> I don't think our sins are identical to the ones next. But, but what we need to see from the text is Judah's willingness to own up to his past. That's what he does in verse 16 for the first time. He owns it. And, and, and if you're going to if you're gonna do business with this, you've got to own your past. You've got to be willing to acknowledge, yeah, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. And in this story of Joseph, we see God softly pricking consciences and creating circumstances that bring these boys to realize, oh my goodness, God, God is doing something in my life. And he still does that today. So you're here and you're feeling particularly guilty about something and you're just quite surprised by all these circumstances that just so happen to occur in such a way that you are feeling guilty. That in, that in coincidence. The text then is inviting us to admit that we are sinners. And in light of who God is, our response should be to fall on our faces and say, I am a sinner and I need a substitute. For all who admit their grave sin, we find, like Benjamin, a substitute. Friend, we're in the position of Benjamin. We're guilty, and we need somebody to take our place. But, but maybe you're thinking, well, time out, Pastor. I actually don't like that, because you already said Benjamin didn't do anything. Time out, Pastor. Benjamin didn't sell his brothers into slavery, so why are we like Benjamin and need a, need a substitute? Here's, here's what would be helpful to you. When those boys get on their donkeys and they head to Egypt, they are preparing to face a scary leader who can punish them in any way he likes because the silver cup is in Benjamin's bag. And I grant, Benjamin could stand up before the scary guy and go, yeah, but I didn't do it. I didn't put it there. And the scary guy, all he has to say is, but is the silver cup in your bag? The answer is yes. And Benjamin will face judgment because the silver cup is in his bag. Would you say silver cup? One, two, three. Silver cup. Here's the parallel. Some of you may be sitting here going, mm -mm, I don't like that you're saying I'm guilty of having a silver cup in my bag because I didn't do it. Okay. Okay, you're mad that you are a sinner by nature. You're mad that in the family tree, Adam and Eve messed it all up, and one day you're going to face God, and he's going to find you guilty because of what Adam and Eve did. And that's fine. If you want to go take Adam out to coffee and give him what for someday in eternity, God bless you for it. But before God, 
when you stand before God and he says, is the silver cup in your bag? Are you guilty of original sin? You can try to blame shift all day long. Yeah, but Adam, I mean, look what Adam did with the garden. But it doesn't change the facts, friends. The silver cup's in your bag. And you're going to get punished for it. You need a substitute. You need somebody who will take your place. But it's not just because you're a sinner by nature. Because fine, maybe you're here and you're, you're wanting to deny original sin. But the Bible would say you're not only a sinner by nature, you're a sinner by choice. Because who here truly? Is anybody in this room who could say, from the moment when I have my first memory until this very moment at this part of my life, I have never done anything that is a sin before God Almighty, but I have lived perfect righteousness before you, Lord. I mean, if that's you, would you come talk to me afterwards? I'd like to ask you a few things. Because you're crazy. None of us can say that. So even if you want to deny original sin, the Bible's got you checkmate because you are also a sinner by choice. You need a substitute. Thanks be to God. He has provided a substitute for us. His name is Jesus, and he will take your place. He comes from the line of Judah. If you didn't know, you want to know the family tree of Jesus? Judah is in his lineage. And Jesus, the true and better Judah, who stood up and said, I will take the sin of my brothers and sisters. Non-Christian, if you're here, this is the most important part of the sermon. Believe you're guilty and need a substitute. You may have gotten a little bit excited about the idea of getting your credit card debt paid off or your student loans paid off or your mortgage paid off. Guys, this, is a, this idea of eternal salvation is infinitely more valuable than any financial debt that you could ever pay off. Your sin debt is so great. Eternity is so long. There is nothing more valuable right now than you believing, I am guilty of sin and I need a substitute. Believe it. Call on Jesus right now. He'd be your substitute. He's ready. It's application one. Application two, I've got three total. Here's number two. It'll go quicker. Believe real changes possible. Believe real changes possible. Here's what I want you to see in the text. Too often, Christians like us who say we believe the gospel, who say, yes, the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside you and me, believer. We, we, we have the power, but practically, when it comes to thinking about change, we don't really believe it. How many of us have a friend that we think they'll never change? Or maybe somebody in your family, you think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, God can like split the Red Sea and he can bring Jesus back from the dead, but he can't change this person. They're just, they're too far gone. I mean, that's the way we think. Or maybe you're not cynical about all these other people in your life. Maybe that's not your cup of tea. Yours is actually, you're cynical about yourself. You've been struggling in the same pattern of sin. And this morning you find yourself feeling guilty again because it's the same old stuff day after day. And you keep making promises. This is the last time. I'm not going to get back into that sin rut. And then sin just splits you wide open and you're back in that same place. And you're thinking in your heart of hearts, sure, maybe Jesus can save that person and Jesus can change this person, but he can't really change me. I don't know how you're cynical. 
today, whether you're cynical that God can change other people or God can change you. But look, if God can change Judah, he can change anybody. If you're having a hard time believing that Jesus is powerful enough to change one of your family members or friends, man, look at Judah. That cat seems all the way gone. And Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, was able to change Judah. If you're here and you think, man, my sin issues have me too far gone, it's a lie. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So I don't care how many years you've been struggling with some repetitive sin. Change is possible. Good grief, this is the only place we can really find change. I love how the ESV study Bible puts it in this point. They write, the change in Judah and the brothers prefigures the change of heart that Christ works through the Spirit. Dear Christian, real change is possible. I don't know where you're stuck, but reach out for help. Get this sin stuff into the light. Get your sin of unbelief that God can change somebody else, get that into the light. Get your own private sin stuff, get that into the light. Real change is possible, but it's only possible if you would first believe that you are a sinner and you need to substitute. These applications build on each other. You got to believe you're a sinner, substitutes needed, believe real change is necessary. Final application, if you're taking notes, write this one down too, please. Believe God wants unity in his family. Throughout this Joseph story, we have seen terrible dysfunction from favored wives and ignored sons to trying to hide this awful sin, selling their brother into slavery. And yet, this is the family, this dysfunctional family is the family God has handpicked to bring light to the world. Like if you're gonna pick, if you're gonna rank dysfunctional families, these people are making top 10 list of all time. <laughs> But they're the chosen family. Great hope for anybody in here whose personal family feels a little dysfunctional. If you're here and you're like, yeah, my family's got issues, man. Well, you're in good company. Because look at the kind of family God picks. God wants unity in your family. And he's powerful enough to do it. He can do it in your personal family. He can also do it in us as a church family. See, in churches like ours, there's a bunch of dysfunction. Like, if you're here and you're checking Mill Creek out, and you're like, you know, maybe, maybe, honey, this is a church for us, and we could, like, maybe we should sign up for a life group and become members of this church because they seem to really have this church stuff figured out. <whistles> Warning, let me, just, let me just talk you off that cliff. This church has issues. We are dysfunctional here. I mean, we put the fun in dysfunctional, but we've got issues. Just want to make sure you know. So, so don't come signing on to this church like we've got it all figured out. We don't. But what we do have is a commitment to unity. So there's going to be issues with us as a church family, but by God's grace, we're going to look at God's word, and we're going to bring the truth of the gospel to bear on how we deal with dysfunction and reconciliation. If you've ever been hurt at a church, I get it. Some of you have been hurt at this church, but by God's grace, he wants unity for us. And how is this unity realized from our text? We see the brothers sticking with Benjamin even when they look guilty. They didn't know if Benjamin stole the cup or not, but they stuck with him. That's how we do it with each other. We ought to stick together. 
Unity comes by admitting our guilty past. That's what Judah does. He goes, yeah, I'm guilty, man. We got to be people who admit our guilty past. Judah and the brothers are willing to overlook favoritism. We ought to do that too. And finally, having an attitude that's willing to substitute for others. I'll pay the price of your sin. Those are the building blocks for unity from our text. Principles for our unity today. Non-Christian, I get that jumping onto a dysfunctional family might seem scary. But God wants his church family to find unity. And we'd love for you to be part of our family and pursue unity with us. Well, my final thought, I suppose there's some pastors out there who would wish that their churches would perfectly score on that national survey. And for a while I thought, yeah, that's what I wish for us too. But I've decided I'd trade a church willing to commit themselves to the truths of Genesis 44 over any survey right answers. Church, what's more important than answering a bunch of questions on a survey is to be the kind of people who believe we are guilty of sin. We need a substitute. Real change is possible. And God wants us to have unity. May we be that kind of church, the kind of church committed to Genesis 44. Will you pray with me? Now, Father, I, I thank you that you have given us your word. and We can know it. We thank you for Christ and his substitutionary sacrifice for us. I pray you would save through the power of your spirit. Holy Spirit, right now, wherever people are at, do your work. Convict of sin. Convict of righteousness. Save. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.